If you have your Bibles, please flip them open to the Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon is, uh, those of you guys who have never read through it, it's a very interesting book. We're going to get into it today, which is a lot of fun. It is one of the last poetic books. So if you hit the prophetic books, Isaiah, Jeremiah, those kind of things, you've gone too far. You need to back up a little bit. But it's at the very end of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and then should be the Song of Solomon. Normally, I just jump right in and I start reading it, but this is an interesting book, and and it requires a little bit of an introduction before we get into it. And before I do that, let's pray and get ready for the message. So, Father, I thank you so much that we have the opportunity to dig into your word, and what a beautiful book this is. I pray that you would open our eyes to it, that it would provide us with new understanding and clarity in regards to your love and your goodness towards us as your people. We love you, Lord, and in your name. Amen. All right, so as I said, Song of Solomon is a, it's an interesting book. It's one that actually is not talked about a whole lot in church. Uh, there are a lot of people that I talk to who have been Christians for years, and they've never actually read it um, or had a sermon taught on it. And there's several reasons as to why people get a little uncomfortable with this book, which we'll talk about later. But it's important to understand the outline of the book, what what kind of a book it is before we jump into it, because it can be a little strange for some people. Uh, The first is the title, which gives us a hint. Uh, It's called The Song of Solomon or The Song of Songs. Uh, The Song of Songs just means it's like the greatest song of all time. It was like the number one hit within Israel. Everyone loved it. Everyone was listening to it. It was the best. Now, the author traditionally is understood to be Solomon, uh, David's son and one of the greatest kings in Israel. And uh, we'll get a little more into some of the details of this book in a second, but it's also not a traditional song as we would understand it. So it's not like a psalm uh, where you have one cohesive song from beginning to end, and there's like a refrain, and there's a chorus, and there's melody, and things like that. It would actually be probably more like an opera or a musical. So it's, it's telling us a story. And because of that, you have multiple people singing within this song. So the characters within this story, if you want to call it that, are Solomon, the woman that he is wooing, the woman that he is having this romantic relationship with, and uh, basically, there's a, there's a chorus going on, a, a group of people who are singing that we identify as the young women of Jerusalem. Now, we don't know the identity of the woman who is in view here, but the entirety of the story, the entirety of the book, actually happens from her perspective. So it's from her perspective. She's seeing all these things going down. And what the story tells is it tells the story of her romantic relationship with Solomon. And it jumps around a little bit. So it's not like one story from beginning to end. It's not chronological. It's they're dating in some parts. They're married in some parts. They're fighting in some parts. It's just a very interesting story as you go through it. Now, another interesting thing about this woman is that she's unnamed. We don't actually know her identity. And there's a pretty good reason for that. If you know anything about Solomon's life, the word monogamy does not really jump into your mind. Solomon was probably the worst polygamist that we have recorded for us in history. Uh, The guy had about 300 wives and 700 concubines. Uh, A concubine was an ancient kind of 
practice where you would provide, a, a woman would provide you with romantic or sexual services, and you wouldn't have to give her marital rights. So Solomon had a lot of women within his life. And this story very clearly depicts a monogamous relationship. She is very clearly the only person within Solomon's life, and their relationship is very intimate and exclusive, which leads a lot of people to believe that this is an entirely fictional account. This didn't actually happen. But there's reasons as to why it's still very much important. So let's read the first chapter. It's very beautiful with that kind of introduction in mind. We're going to read the first chapter, and we're just going to break apart a couple aspects within it. And by the way, the next two sermons I'm going to do are going to be from select passages within this book. I'm not going to get through the whole book today, but I do want to give uh, those of you guys who are listening to these a pretty good idea of what the book is about and some insight that it provides us when it comes to marital love romantic love, and God's love towards his people. So this is verse 1 of the Song of Solomon, and I am reading from the New Living Translation uh, because it preserves the poetry a little bit better than some of the other translations out there. Uh, But anyway, this is verse 1. This is Solomon's Song of Songs, more wonderful than any other. And this is the young woman's part. Kiss me and kiss me again, for your love is sweeter than wine. How pleasing is your fragrance. Your name is like the spreading fragrance of scented oils. No wonder all the young women love you. Take me with you. Come, let us run. The king has brought me into his bedroom. This is the young women of Jerusalem. How happy we are for you, O king. We praise your love even more than wine. The young woman. How right they are to adore you. I am dark but beautiful, O woman of Jerusalem, dark as the tents of Kedar, dark as the curtains of Solomon's tents. Don't stare at me because I am dark. The sun has darkened my skin. My brothers were angry with me. They forced me to care for their vineyards so I couldn't take care of myself, my own vineyard. Tell me, my love, where are you leading your flock today? Where will you rest your sheep at noon? For why should I wander like a prostitute among the friends of your flocks? The young man, if you don't know a most beautiful woman, follow the trail of my flock and graze your young goats by the shepherd's tents. You are as exciting, my darling, as a mare among Pharaoh's stallions. How lovely are your cheeks, your earrings set them afire. How lovely is your neck enhanced by a string of jewels. We will make for you earrings of gold and beads of silver. Young woman, the king is lying on his couch, enchanted by the fragrance of my perfume. My lover is like a sachet of myrrh laying between my breasts. He is like a bouquet of sweet henna blossoms from the vineyards of Engedi. The young man, how beautiful you are, O my darling, how beautiful. Your eyes are like doves. Young woman, you are so handsome, my love, pleasing beyond words. The soft grass is our bed. Fragrant cedar branches are the beams of our house, and pleasant-smelling firs are its rafters. Okay, so again, very, very beautiful story, very intimate and very sensual, which is, by the way, one of the reasons why most people do not talk about it in Christianity. So early on in Christianity, the early leaders were heavily influenced. I'm going to give you guys a little backstory of of the church's role when it comes to romantic love. Uh, The early leaders of the church, what we call the church fathers, a lot of them were heavily influenced by Greek philosophical thought. And Greek philosophical thought was predominantly influenced by a guy named Plato. 
And Plato had this very interesting idea about sensuality and pleasure. And that is that it's pretty much bad. <laughs> you shouldn't do it. Uh, from Plato came these group of thinkers called the Gnostics, who actually believed that the physical and the spiritual were totally separate, and that if you wanted to get closer to the divine or the spiritual, you had to actually abdicate physical pleasure. Now, this understanding, this belief system passed down into the early church fathers, and they started to have a very negative view of sensual pleasure and marriage as a whole. They started to forbid marriage. Um, Even people who were married, they encouraged them not to have sex. And this view permeated the church. And it still permeates the church to a great degree, to the extent where a lot of Christians don't like talking about sexual pleasure. They don't like talking about marital love. It's one of those taboo topics within the church. It makes a lot of people uncomfortable, which is really unfortunate because apparently it was so important that God dedicated an entire book of the Bible to it. So obviously God is not shy or timid about talking about these things. And if you read through this book, there are some very intimate moments within the book, very intimate stories. Now, they utilize a lot of metaphor. They utilize a lot of interesting poetic techniques to not really cloak, but to desensualize a lot of the passages. But if you're reading the metaphors and from an adult view, from an adult lens, and you understand what they're talking about, the kind of imagery that they're eliciting, it makes a lot of sense, right? It's very clear that they are describing each other in a state of arousal. They are describing each other in a, in a fit of sensual pleasure. And it's it can make you a little uncomfortable if you're not ready or prepared for that. But once again, this is an inspired work of God. This is not some random, you know, pornographic smut or something like that that we came across. This is an inspired work of God. And what that should tell us is if this makes you uncomfortable, you got one of two options. Either the Bible's wrong or you're wrong. Perhaps your view of this, perhaps your view of sexuality has been tainted by Christian culture, and that's bad. So just because Christian culture exists within the church doesn't mean it's infallibly right. There are certain things that Christians promote that are just not true. And sensual pleasure is a very, it should be, it ought to be a very important piece of our Christian lives. Uh, Quick note. Those people out there who are single, who are like, well, I'm single right now, what does this book have to say to me? I'll give you two things very quickly before we get into the totality of this book. Uh, The first thing for single people, number one, even Jewish rabbis, when they were studying this book, they used to describe it as the holy of holies, meaning they, they saw it as one of the most important books of the Old Testament. Why? Well, throughout the Old Testament and the New, it's no secret that God's favorite metaphor for the type of love that he has for his people is romantic love. He describes himself over and over again as the bridegroom. Jesus describes himself as this. And in fact, the entirety of heaven is depicted in wedding ceremony type of symbolism. Uh, If you want to read this on your own time, read through Revelation 19 through the end of the book, and you'll see what I'm talking about. Very incredibly deep and intimate passages describing God's love for his people. Every now and then he uses parental love, but most often he uses romantic love. So in reading this book, 
you could read it in that way. As a single person, you could read it in that way. This is the kind of love that God has for his people. It's not an exact one-to-one ratio translation, but it does give you an insight into how passionate, how intimate, how special, how exclusive, how much, uh, how precious God's love is for his people. And when you understand it that way, it's very, very beautiful. The second point that I'll make to single people, and this is really only for single people who want to remain single for the rest of their lives. If you intend on being married one day, then this book is very important to you. But if you do intend to, to be single for the rest of your lives, or if marriage doesn't really appeal to you, one note that I'll make. Um, Paul was such a person, right? The Apostle Paul in the New Testament was someone who was single, and he remained single for the entirety of his life. And yet, when Paul speaks about his relationship to the churches, he, has, he utilizes this same type of intimate, affectionate language when he's talking about the churches. I especially encourage you to read the books of Philippians and First and Second Thessalonians. You'll see what I'm talking about. The kind of language he elicits to describe his affection for the church is very romantic. It's very romantic. And the reason why is because the way that the Apostle Paul saw it is that, again, romantic love is a good, and it is a good, it's an inherent good that should be present in the lives of all of God's people. Because Saul, because Paul, saw himself as a single person, he said, well, I don't have a wife to which I could give this type of affectionate compassion. I will instead pour out this type of, sensual, this type of affection towards the body of Christ, towards the bride of Christ. So a lot of people in our day and age, they've, they've made a little bit of a mistake where they're like, well, I'm single and this is, I'm just going to live my life in this direction. Historically, you have to understand the gift of singleness, the call to singleness was a call to invest yourself within the community of believers. It was not a call to master Xbox or to be like the best YouTuber or something like that. It wasn't a call to just live selfishly. It was a call to actually live one of the most selfless lives imaginable, saying, I'm going to give up all of my life to the good of the body of Christ. So that's the call of singleness, and so it's very important. So even from that perspective, you could read this book and say, man, you know, obviously, again, it's not a one-to-one translation, but do I have this type of affection for God's people? Do I love the people of God? Am I seeking their good above my own? Right? That should be the call of the single person. So uh, just, just a quick note. But let's get into the actual meat of this, because, again, the, the most— Easy way to understand this, and the most relevant way, I believe, is just to understand it as a romantic text. Another point is that, once, I, once again, I said that this was more than likely a fictional account, not, not a real account, not a historical account, but a fictional account. Now, this is important. Some people will discount this book because of that. They'll be like, well, it's fictional, so it's not really real. It's not very, very important as a result of that. I strongly disagree. Here's why. If you want to understand culture, if you want to understand the way that people see relationships, fiction, the fictional accounts, the narratives that are being spun by the arts are the way that you can understand the culture. So I'm going to say that again. 
culture is most shaped by the arts, by the fiction that the culture creates. Here's why. When it comes to reality, when it comes to actual reality, what we're discussing is we're just discussing the events as they exist. That's it. There's no positive or negative to that. There's no narrative that you can derive from real events. It's just the way that things are. What fiction does is fiction provides us with an ideal of the way that things ought to be. Without fiction, without this type of idealized understanding of the world, you have no, nothing objective by which to challenge reality. There's a proverb that says this, Proverbs 29, verse 18, where there is no vision, the people will perish. If we don't know what the ideal is, if we don't know what, the, what we are shooting for, what the goal is, if we don't have a vision, we don't have a perspective. And if we don't have a perspective, we don't have a way to judge what is better or what is worse. Now, this is really interesting because... In the early 50s and 60s, and my wife is funny, she loves, like, Leave it to Beaver, and I love Lucy and the Waltons and all this stuff, and she's watching, and I, I like, can't care less. I'm like, you know, that's, that's cool. You know, you watch, you watch these old black and white shows, but I don't, I don't really like them. I don't, I don't dig them too much. Sorry if you guys love that stuff, but I, I just don't. I, I just don't find it that entertaining. But one of the things you'll notice, right, so I have watched a couple episodes with her, and one of the things you notice is they're very different than modern-day programming. Very different. One of the big differences is that it is idealized, meaning that the families there are very happy. They get along. If there is conflict, it lasts for like two minutes, and then they resolve it very quickly. But they're just a very, very loving family. Now, the reason why we ditched this, especially in the 90s when I grew up, was because people were like, that's not realistic. And people complained about it. They're like, you know, that provides a standard of living that's just unrelatable, Nobody can live up to it. It makes me feel condemned. It makes me feel bad about myself. And so therefore, programming started becoming more and more reflective of what people actually live. And this was also the birth of reality television, right? Reality television really started to take off in the late 90s, early 2000s because of this. People were saying, I don't want to watch this idealized version because it makes me feel bad about myself. So just give me a lot of content that reflects more what I experience in, a, in my day-to-day. Now, that made people feel better, but the problem is, is without vision, a city will perish, a culture will perish, a civilization will perish. When you don't know what the ideal looks like, once again, you don't have an ability to challenge the status quo. You don't have the ability to say, this is right or this is wrong. You lose moral language which is what's happened to our culture. We don't know what looks good or what we should be, what we should become based on the type of culture we're producing. We're creating a culture, in other words, of tolerance and acceptance without understanding what is the good that we're pursuing. We're a culture without direction. And because of that, we're perishing. Right? We're dying. In a very literal sense, by the way. Um, you know, the, the birth rate right now in our culture is, I think, 1.25 kids per couple. And, you know, if you're not too hot at math, you'll realize, wait, couple is two people. 1.25 is less than two. So what does that mean? It means we're dying. <laughs> it means our culture is, is literally dying because we don't have a perspective 
of what the most important relationship in our lives ought to look like, which is romantic relationships. Okay. Um, and again, Christians have kind of missed this point as well. I'll, I'll explain how Christians have missed it in a sec. But let's just, again, focus on this. If you don't have an ideal, you don't know what you're aiming for, and so therefore you could never live up to it, right? You have nothing that you can actually do. Um, okay, so the next part that we need to understand when it comes to this book, so it has an ideal, an ideal perspective of love, and this also hits us as Christians, and this is why. Christians like to talk in, like, vagaries. We say, like, well, you know, like, we ought to love each other the way that God does. Now, that's true, but when we use language like that, we miss what that language actually means. What we mean by saying that we ought to love one another as God loves us is we mean that God's love provides us a template. It provides us a structure, a vague outline of what love looks like. What it doesn't do is it doesn't provide us with specifics. It doesn't provide us with specifics. It doesn't tell us exactly what we ought to do. Now, Christians try to make up that by saying, well, you know, like, yeah, it does. And what they'll usually throw out next are a bunch of what not to do's. Don't have sex before marriage. Don't get a divorce. Don't marry a non-believer. right? There's a lot of not to do's. But there's nothing presented to us about what we should be looking for when it comes to romance. You know, I, I grew up in the church. I was, I was very much raised by Christian parents and everything like that. And it only occurred to me a couple of years ago, you know, I've been married for six years now, but it only occurred to me a couple of years ago, I was like, I had really no clue what I was looking for in a partner. I had no idea from a biblical perspective. All I knew was I was looking for another Christian. But I've been around the church long enough to know that just because someone says they're a Christian doesn't mean a whole lot. Uh, it almost means nothing in our day and age. I had no idea what I was looking for, and I had no idea what a healthy marriage was all about from a biblical perspective. I was very thankful that I had very good parents who exemplified this for me, but most people don't have that. Most people do not have a good example for their parents, and so all they have to go off of is the culture. In other words, your perspective of romance, although you are in the church, is more shaped by the outside culture than it is by the scriptures. Why? Because nobody has applied the scriptures to you in the specifics. In other words, you have a map in your head, but you got it from illicit sources. You got it from bad sources. What the Song of Solomon does is it provides us with a fictional, idealized account of romance from which we can actually derive specifics of what we should be looking for within romance and within an intimate love relationship. God's love cannot provide specifics because God's love is, A, primarily non-physical. God's love does not have any sensuality to it. And so when we say, I need to love my wife the way that Christ loved the church, that's great. That helps me a little bit. But sexuality and sensuality are a huge part of romantic relationships. God's love can't tell me how to do that. It can't instruct me in those ways. Beyond that, God's love is between a perfect being and an imperfect being, namely myself. That's not what marriage looks like. Marriage is between two very imperfect beings. So how do you describe that kind of relationship? 
Once again, you're not looking for a perfect person. You're looking for an imperfect person. But that doesn't mean you could totally throw out all standards and say, well, we're all sinners. We're all a mess. So therefore, no standard should be set up at all. You should have standards when it comes to looking for a romantic partner. You should have standards as to what a romantic relationship ought to look like. These are all important questions that, once again, a lot of people in the church do not know how to adequately answer. And Satan is all over this, by the way. Satan loves attacking marriage. He loves attacking marriage. Why? Well, two reasons. Number one, I've already given you. Marriage most closely reflects God's relationship with his people. But secondly, marriage is actually the building blocks for all society. If you think about it, the first community of human beings was created by two couples, I mean, one couple in love. Society was not started by friends. Society was not started by a parent with their kids. Society was started by one man and one woman committed together in a romantic relationship. Marriage is the founding, it is the building block for all community, all society, all of human endeavor. It all derives from the romantic relationship. And it's very interesting, you know, I, recently I just read, reread uh, A Brave New World in 1984, which, by the way, great books to read right now. If, if you're like looking for a book to read, given our current climate, those are two very good books that I could recommend. Now, in both books, in both books, which are a view of a totalitarian state, right, a completely controlling, despotic, governmental structure. In both books, they're coming at it from two very different angles. Both books, the state, the enemy of the book, is attacking marriage. That's the first thing they attack. In A Brave New World, they attack it more like our society attacks it. It's not direct. It's not like we're getting rid of marriage. What they do in A Brave New World is they're like, well, you know, exclusivity is so wrong. You know, isn't it better to just say we all belong to one another? And that becomes the state motto. Everyone belongs to everyone. And you hear a lot of young people talking like that now. Of like, well, you know, marriage, it's so antiquated. It's so exclusive. There's all these jealousies. Isn't it better to just be free in the way that we love one another? to not be bound, to not utilize in these labels and these terminologies, right? The attack on marriage coming from sensuality. Very interesting. In 1984, it's the exact opposite. In 1984, it's more of a religious worldview where the state tells people you shouldn't marry because marriage makes you selfish. Marriage is pleasurable and sensuality is pleasurable, so therefore it makes you selfish. It makes you someone who wants their own good above the collective. So therefore, you know, yeah, you got to marry because we got to have kids in, in this country. But, you know, don't enjoy it. Don't enjoy the sexual act. Don't enjoy anything about it. It's just, it's your duty to the state. And once again, there have been many Christians throughout the ages who have said something like that. They attack marriage. They don't even think about it. But they're attacking marriage through religious responsibility and a veil of selflessness, which is actually corrupt. Paul actually describes that type of mindset, by the way, as the doctrine of demons in 1 Timothy chapter 4. So don't let the religious veil fool you. This is an attack on marriage, and it is an attack on what God designed. 
And make no mistakes about that. It doesn't matter if it's coming from the pulpit or not. It still is very much against the ideal, what God actually wants. Quick note. A lot of the Bible, a lot of the Bible, the narrative recorded for us in the historical books, if you notice, if you read the historical books of the Bible, it is more like reality TV than it is like a sitcom, right? It's very ugly. There's a lot of mistakes. There's a lot of errors. The reason why the Bible is able to get away with that, though, is because the main character in the Bible is God, not man. So in other words, the reason why we can read the Old Testament and not be influenced by it, meaning there's a reason why a lot of Christians who read the Old Testament are not emulating guys like Abraham, like Isaac, like Jacob. We're not trying to become like them. Why? Because we recognize that their behavior is wrong because it's always shown through the perspective of godliness. So we see their errors stand out very flatly to us because it is in opposition to God's character. And it's very clear. That's why Christianity is able to do what we do. It's able to have these narratives without allowing these narratives to move us too strongly. We have a standard, and that is God. But this book, like I said, stands alone because it is the only book that describes for us a romantic relationship that is idealized. It is the ideal. It is what we should be shooting for. Okay. Next. There is an ideal to love. There is an ideal to love. There is something that we should be looking for when it comes to romantic relationships. Now, in our culture, like I said, we like to throw off the ideal because the ideal makes us feel bad. It makes us feel like we are judged under it, and we would rather throw it off. Because of that, like I said, there, there really isn't an ideal, but we still have this compulsive need to create morality. Now, in our culture, we still do have sexual morality. We, we think we don't, but we actually do. And because we struggle so much with sexual morality, we word it in very interesting ways. Have you ever wondered, especially those of you guys who are older, why the talk of rape and molestation has really kicked up in the last couple of years, the Me Too movement. If you've under, ever wondered why that is, it's because if you throw out all sexual morality, but people are still experiencing the negativity of sexual abuse, they don't have a language necessary to explain it. So in other words, instead of someone saying, Having sex, having casual sex with another human being is violating and dehumanizing. Instead of saying that, they could say, well, you know, like guys who force girls to drink or anything like that or just expect sex, that's a form of coercion. It's a form of rape. And the definition of rape is ever inflating in our culture. The reason why it's inflating so quickly is because, like I said, people recognize this behavior is wrong but they lack the moral language to condemn it. The other language that people utilize is that of tolerance. They say, well, that's intolerant or that's bigoted to think that way. And again, the definition for intolerance and bigotry is ever-expanding because we've thrown out moral language. Christians shouldn't fall into this trap. We should have a very nuanced view, very complex, very secure view of sexuality so that we can call a spade a spade, so we can call particular behavior evil or wicked or sinful because it misses the mark of what is ideal. It misses the mark of what is ideal. 
Now, another important distinction is that the secularist, meaning that someone who comes from the worldview that there is no God, and they're again, they're trying to make up this moral structure, they make another mistake. They focus primarily on human relationships to define their morality. So in other words, if you were to ask the average person, are you a good person? They would define their morality based on their behavior in their relationships. Yeah, I'm a pretty loving person. I'm pretty kind. I'm pretty generous. That's the kind of language you would hear. For the Christian, we have to understand our morality is not predominantly gotten from the way that we relate to other people. Our morality is predominantly gotten through the way that we relate to God. Now, this is going to be very key, and this is going to be like the central point. If you want to understand this, this is the central point of the Song of Solomon. And if we don't understand this, we miss the whole book. For the Christian, love is predominantly found in our relationship with God. It is not found in our relationship with man. Our relationship with other human beings is representative of what we really need, which is a relationship with God. If you miss that, if you miss that, romance becomes the center point for your existence. You will worship it like a god, and you will seek a romantic partner on the same level and for the same purposes that you seek a relationship with God for. Now, I'm going to call attention to something that did happen in chapter 1. The young woman in verse 4 says this. I mean, I'm sorry, verse 5. I am dark but beautiful, O women of Jerusalem. Dark as the tents of Kedar, dark as the curtains of Solomon's tents. Don't stare at me because I am dark. The sun has darkened my skin. My brothers were angry with me. They forced me to care for the vineyards so I wouldn't care for myself, my own vineyard. Now, in that culture... In our culture, it's like being tan is associated with beauty. In that culture, being tan was associated with lower class citizens because the people who were tan were the people who had to work outside. The people who were more pale or light-skinned were the people that had the luxury of not having to work outside. So it actually denoted class. And because of that, it was an unattractive feature. So if someone was tan in that culture, that was a turnoff. They were considered lower class, and they were considered less attractive. The reason why I bring this up is because if you notice what she's doing, is she has this insecurity about her appearance, but you notice she doesn't deal with that insecurity in her relationship with Solomon. She doesn't go to Solomon and say, hey, deal with my, I feel dark but beautiful. And then what we would expect is Solomon, the next line to come from him, and to say, you're not you're not ugly, I like it, I like the dark skin, I think you're beautiful and attractive just the way you are. That's the line we would expect within a modern-day romance, but that's not what happens. She assures herself before she communicates with Solomon. Now, what this shows us is it shows us that she is not looking to Solomon to be her God and Savior. She is looking to Solomon to love and cherish him because she's already found her God and Savior. She already finds her worth and her acceptance outside of the relationship. So she's not looking inside the relationship to receive that type of assurance. That's not where she's looking. She is looking to Solomon 
to love him. True love, God's love, is about selflessly giving, not selfless, selfishly taking. If we go into a romantic relationship, incomplete, without the ideal, without a perspective of God selflessly loving and caring for us, we will take that neediness into the relationship and we'll implode it. The reason why we're going to implode it is because that person can never give you what God alone can. That person can never give you what God alone can. This is why, you know, as a marital counselor, I'll tell you, this is the number one issue that I see within marriage. Number one. The number one issue that I see break apart marriages is that people go in incomplete and they never seek their completeness through God. And they start becoming bitter and resentful towards their partner until all their attraction, all the goodness that was once present within the relationship evaporates. And all they can see is the ugliness of their partner. The reason why they see their partner as ugly, hideous, unappealing after years is because they were looking at that person to make them complete. And when that person failed to do so, they began to pick apart everything wrong with them, and they began to destroy them. Because the more they started to pick apart that person, the more it caused that person to put their walls up and push away. It's like, well, if you don't like me, then fine. I don't like you either. And the marriage starts to unravel. It starts to unravel. Here's the truth. If you feel insecure about yourself, if you feel insecure about yourself, your partner can never assure you. Never. Nothing they say will ever make you feel whole. Nothing they do will ever make you feel whole. They can't heal you. They can't fix you. That is something that only God can do. If you see yourself becoming increasingly resentful towards your partner, Perhaps it's because you've been looking to them more as a God and less as a partner. Very dangerous. Romantic love, because it's so important, it is the relationship that is most easily substituted for God. It is the relationship that most easily becomes an idol. If you don't believe me, just listen to a love song every now and then. And when you listen to love songs, what do you hear? You hear the same kind of language, the same type of adoration, the same type of praise that you would normally find in worship music. They speak of eternal love. They speak of unconditional love. They speak of unrelenting love, love that can't be broken or destroyed. They talk about love like it's going to fix them, like it's going to heal them, like it's going to make them better. Watch a romantic comedy and you'll see the same kind of thing. It's the romance that heals the broken. Now, they're right, but they're wrong about the source of the romance. They're right about the cure, but they're wrong about where the cure comes from. It's never going to come from your partner. Other people make the opposite error. They find their worth, we call this codependency, by the way. They find their worth not through the relationship, but they find their worth through being that kind of person. In other words, I want to prove that I'm a good person through how loving I am to you. Because of that, I'm going to seek out naturally broken people, and I'm going to prove to myself that I can fix you, that I can be your everything, that I can make you whole. And eventually, 
you will also be run down by that desire because you can't make that person whole and you will end up feeling like a failure, which is, by the way, what attracted you to this person in the first place. You already felt empty. You already felt hollow. You already felt a lack of significance. So you took on a fixer-upper and you try to make them what you think they should be. And because you're failing to do so, you're beginning to resent yourself and them. Be very careful about the way that you see romance. Romance is beautiful. Romance is passionate. Romance is sensual. Romance is incredible. And it is reflective of God. But never mistake it for the real thing. Never mistake it for the real thing. It is just a picture. Um, I don't remember who did this, but it, I, I thought it was kind of funny. It's a really poignant uh, kind of uh, artistic expression. Someone back in like the 1600s, they drew a very beautiful painting of a cup of coffee. And they named the painting, This is Not a Cup of Coffee. Now, I think it's really funny because what he's saying is this is a painting of a cup of coffee, but it's not the real thing. If you're thirsty and you come and you look at this painting, guess where you're going to leave the painting? Thirsty. It's not actually designed to meet that need. It's just a, it's a picture. It's a portrait. It's not real. Marriage is like that. If you come to the marriage hungry and thirsty, you will leave it hungry and thirsty. It won't satisfy you. But Jesus said, anyone who is thirsty, come to me and drink, and out of your being will flow rivers of living water. It's a picture. It's supposed to allow us to see the real thing without actually touching it. So the person who is really understanding this is someone who says, I'm finding my everything met in God. God is also the ideal of love, is also instructing me, because here's another thing. If you don't have the ideal met in God, how will you accept correction? How will you accept correction? Because if love is where you're trying to find your worth, your value, your significance from, then that means that if someone corrects you, they are correcting the very activity that you're defining yourself through. You won't be able to accept it. You will deny, you'll redirect the blame, you'll justify, you'll become resentful and bitter, but you won't change your behavior. Or you'll be utterly crushed by what people are saying about you, and you'll break down into a puddle of tears, calling yourself the worst person who ever lived. But once again, you won't actually change. The only person who's resilient enough to take correction when it comes to romance is the person that is finding their primary source of love met through the only person who loved them truly unconditionally, God. The person who died for their sins and does promise that his sacrifice and love can actually make us better. Those are the only people who can receive correction within a romantic construct. Uh, Another quick note about that. This is not to excuse your responsibility and obligation as a partner. So this is not an excuse for the lazy husband to say, well, honey, I know you want me to tell you you're beautiful, but that's not really my place. That's God's place. You know, like if you're looking for it from me, you're not going to get it. So, you know, go to God, you know, he'll, he'll assure you, I'm not going to do it. You know, if you're looking for flowers tomorrow, sorry, but you know, I want you to be so secure in the Lord. You know, it's weird how we justify, I want you to be so secure in Christ that you don't need that from me. You know, no, you're just lazy. You're a bad husband. Go buy the flowers. Why? Because you are supposed to reflect God's character. So my call as an individual is to reflect God's type of love towards my wife. That's my call as a character. And we can't make the mistake of thinking that, well, 
because it's not necessary for her, meaning my wife can be fine without that type of romantic gesture, the relationship won't be. My wife will be fine if I don't do those things. She's secure in God. I have every confidence of that. But the relationship will die unless I invest what is necessary into it. What is necessary for the relationship is different than what is necessary for the individual. Understand that. Again, the reason why this book is not just written as a direct correlation between God and man, but as a man and a wife, is because it's supposed to instruct you on how you ought to act. Will you fall short? Yes. But that's why you need to rely on God, not only for forgiveness, but also the power to do, to do better in the future. Some Christians, they get so fixated on the ideal that they miss what's right in front of their face. They think like, well, you know, I have this relationship with God, and so therefore I'm all good. Yeah, it's true, but you have a relationship that you're committed yourself to. And if you want to honor God, you honor that relationship. I've heard so many people in marital counseling say like, well, yeah, you know, like I know I'm supposed to, but, but they're not putting forth their effort. They're not loving me like Christ. Of course they're not loving you like Christ. They're not Christ. They were never supposed to love you like Christ, right? And they're like, well, you know, I just, I felt so much closer to God before I met them. Probably, probably, but you know what? A, that was probably because you were a newer believer. Now you're not, and you need to learn how to grow and mature. But B, another reason why is because it's always easier to feel closer to God when you don't actually have to be godly. It's always easier to feel closer to God when it's all just about, I'm going to sit and let God love on me, and I'm going to feel really great and feel the warm fuzzies. But then when you actually try to apply godliness to your life and you realize just how wicked you are, that's when you really understand grace. So of course you felt better about yourself before you tried. Everyone does. Right? It's like the, the lazy person who's going to watch the Super Bowl today and be like, I could do that. Well, it, yeah, try it. <laughs> try to do that. Try to be at the level of athleticism of these guys who get paid for it. And you'll realize just how out of shape and worthless you are. <laughs> In the same way, it's like, yeah, you think that you could love like God? Try it. If you can't make it work with someone that you individually love, you're benefited by the incredible passion of sensuality. If you can't make it work there, you probably can't make it work anywhere. And of course, it's going to be better for your ego to give up on your romantic relationship. But it won't be true. It won't be real. If you want to reflect God, start at home. Start at home with the people who could see you the closest. It's so easy for me as a pastor to stand up here and talk about these things, and people have this assumption that, like, man, Peter's got it. I don't got it. And the reason why sometimes I could prefer to be around people who don't know me very well is because they're like, man, like, you, you talk so well, and that's so wise and everything. I'm like, great. But then the one person who sees the real me, my wife, I can push away from because I'm like, well, all these other people think I'm great. It's because they don't see the real me. Of course they think I'm great. But if I were around them all the time, they would have the same complaints that my wife has about me because she really sees me, and I'm a mess. We're all a mess. We're trying to love like God, but we're falling unbelievably short. That's why we need the ideal. We need God's love to complete us, to forgive us, to have mercy on us for our failings. But we also need it to provide us with a template of how to do better. So, I hope that encourages you guys to maybe just try to read the Song of Solomon, to try to get into it. Uh, Like I said, in the next two sermons, we're going to get into more of it and and discuss more of the elements present there. 
But read through it. Apply it to your own relationships. Apply it to your relationship with God. Allow it to instruct you and to convict you, for these are all good things. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you so much for your love, for your goodness towards us. I pray that as we study even this obscure book of your word, that we would see just how precious and how beautiful your affection towards us is. Lord, you are not a God afar off. You are not some distant deity who can't be troubled with us. Lord, you are close. You are near at hand. You are passionate about your people. You love us so fully and so completely. I pray we'd be able to accept this more and more and allow this truth to move us in the way that we relate to others. We're thankful for you, Lord, in your name. Amen.